Welcome to the Purse Podcast. My name is Jana Hlistova, and we are changing the conversation for women about money and investing. I'm super excited about my guests today, Michelle Walker and Barbara Stewart. Michelle Walker is a strategist, speaker, and best-selling author. She coined the term Grey Rhino as a call to take a fresh look at how we respond to obvious, probable, and impactful risks. She founded the Chicago-based advisory firm Grey Rhino & Company and is a former media and think tank executive. Her four books include the influential global bestseller, The Grey Rhino, How to Recognize and Act on the Obvious Dangers We Ignore, and the recently released sequel, You Are What You Risk, The New Art and Science of Navigating an Uncertain World. Barbara Stewart is a chartered financial analyst with 30 years of investment industry experience five years as a foreign currency trader, more than two decades as a portfolio manager for high net worth entrepreneurs, and for the past six years doing interview-driven research for multiple global financial institutions. 13 years ago, Barbara saw a need to challenge outdated financial industry stereotypes and share positive messages about women and money. Today, Barbara is recognized worldwide as one of the leading researchers in women and finance. Rich Thinking Global Research papers quote smart women and men of all ages, professions and countries and are released annually on International Women's Day on March 8th. Now, in this podcast interview, we talk about risk, why we need to understand what it is and how it relates to women specifically around money and investing. We talk about negative stereotypes and money myths, the impact this has had on women, how they invest, and how they are perceived by the industry. Michelle and Barbara talk about how women can overcome systemic risk, such as limited access to information or indeed networks, in order to build their wealth to ensure their financial resilience and their financial security. I hope you enjoy this podcast interview as much as I did. Please note that this podcast interview is for informational purposes only. We do not provide investment advice. Welcome, Barbara and Michelle. I'm so excited to have both of you on the podcast. I've interviewed both of you respectively. And of course, it is because we're going to talk about risk and you are both experts on risk. Before we dive in, I wonder whether you can talk to us about one of the most life-changing risks that you've ever taken, good or bad, what happened, what did it lead to? And I wonder whether I can pose that question, first of all, to you, Barbara. I'll be delighted to share a large personal risk that I took that has fortunately worked out, but I would definitely describe myself as a crazy risk taker in this story. In about nearly 20 years ago, I was getting separated from my then husband of 14 years, and I was devastated. I lost 15 pounds, which I did not need to lose at all. My family was super worried about me, obviously, and my only brother was taking a vacation to South Africa and invited me to join them as a distraction. So I said, yes, that sounds wonderful, booked up my trip, 
And then within a few weeks, randomly fell madly in love with my now husband. That was the last thing I would have expected. And that's a story in and of itself. But within like a week of us dating, he said, well, can I come to South Africa with you? And I went, oh my God, what will my brother think? And he thinks I'm devastated and really upset. <laughs> and I was just so crazy in love at that moment that I said, sure, you can come to South Africa with me. So I, I didn't see as much of my brother as I thought I would running around Cape Town with this new man. But anyway, it all worked out and we ended up moving in together almost immediately when we returned to Toronto. And here we are 20 years later, a year together than we were then. I don't think I would recommend this as a strategy in general for other women, mind you. But I mean, obviously, I just got lucky on that one. But yeah, took a huge risk that paid off very courageous of you to do that as well, Barbara. And, and what about yourself, Michelle? Wow, well, I have taken very few relationship risks <laughs> like that. I, have to say. I take risks in other parts. When I was in college, I got a summer travel grant to go to the Dominican Republic. And I had originally planned to go to the Dominican Republic and Haiti. There had been a coup in Haiti. And I wasn't supposed to go. I can probably admit now, <laughs> many years later, that I took up a bus across the border. And uh, that time on the island was really formative for my whole life, learning about other countries and other cultures. I think there's nothing greater that you can do than going outside of the normal. And it really sparked a lot of the questions that have animated my whole life about economic and political risk and cultural risk and uh, the risk of getting to know other people. Uh, you know, my work in Latin America and Dominican Republic and Haiti, and now my work all around the world. And I think what that highlights is often we think something is risky because we don't know what is at the other side of that. But good or bad, we learn a lot along the way. It's kind of telling already, I think, from what you've both described, but how would you describe yourselves in terms of risk? So would you say that you're a risk avoider or risk aware or risk taker or a risk seeker and why? Well, I've always hated the term risk averse. And the whole reason I started doing my rich thinking research was to counter that negative stereotype. But I'm going to admit that I am, in fact, risk averse in one area of my life, and that is with regard to speed. So I don't like driving fast. I don't like my husband driving fast. Here we are in the south of France right now on these windy roads, and I'm terrified just being a passenger. I trust him, of course, but it's brutal for me. I'm just terrified. And we rented e-bikes to drive around the countryside, and I'm going downhill on gravel, and I just stopped. And we ended up having to return the e-bikes because I don't like the feeling or the sensation of going downhill on gravel, as it turns out. So I have some pretty severe skittishness, and I call that risk aversion around speed and sports. But otherwise, uh, pretty much across the board, especially in terms of my work life, I am a risk taker. And I think the best example of that is my rich thinking research. So I basically abandoned a very well-paying job in the financial sector to pursue something that I had no idea would pay off in any way whatsoever, to the point where I self-financed the whole exercise to the tune of about $50,000 a year 
for the last decade, and it's only now paying off in terms of me getting commissioned research projects and speaking engagements that pay, et cetera, et cetera. So basically I've worked for free for a decade. Luckily I've had some other sources of income from other project work that was unrelated along the way, but I just followed my heart and what I thought was necessary for the planet and for women and to move us forward. Uh, in terms of finance and risk and correcting these negative stereotypes. And now it's paying off and I'm really thrilled. But boy, took some chances there financially. Yeah, and there are so many lessons in that, Barbara. And through your work that we obviously connected, I think I read an article that you published in the CFA back in 2019 or 2020. And that's why I decided to reach out to you because it resonated so much. Similarly, Michelle, I think I came across you on Twitter, actually. So how would you describe yourself? Are you a risk avoider, risk seeker, risk taker? What resonates with you the most? Well, I am with Barbara on my aversion to the term risk averse, which I find is often really badly misapplied and pejorative, particularly towards women and, you know, Gen Z and millennials. I use a, a tool called the Risk Type Compass out of a company called Psychological Consultancy in the UK, which looks at how impulsive or methodical you are and also how anxious or calm you are about risk. And it's got eight personality types, like a compass. And I came out on that as basically mildly intense, which I love. As an oxymoron. <laughs> Intense, obviously. I think a lot about risk. I get very excited about risk. But by mildly, it means I'm sort of towards the center of the compass, which means that I can really relate to all the other kinds of, of risk takers, which also makes sense uh, given what I do. But similarly to Barbara, there are different risks in different parts of my life. People have been calling me an entrepreneur since way before I thought of myself that way. And there have been a couple of times where I've had a choice between going and getting another job working for a big company or doing my own thing and have opted for doing my own thing. But with you know health, safety, you're not going to catch me riding down a hill on a bike either or when there's gravel. <laughs> no bungee jumping. I have celiac disease. So food and health are a daily risk management exercise for me. I sometimes may take more risks than other people with celiac disease because I really love good, exciting food. But at the same time, there are restaurants I know are safe. I go to them again and again. And then I beat myself up when I go to restaurants because if it's a favorite restaurant, I kind of order the same thing all the time. And it's completely at odds with how my friends see me as someone who's a little more adventurous. But I do love trying new foods once I've put the restaurant staff through the celiac insurrection. I wonder whether it's worth defining what risk is and why do we need to understand it in your view? Such a great question, you know, what is risk? Because people have so many different vocabularies about it. There's the sort of technical quantitative side of it. There's the way people use it in daily life, which often is really more about uncertainty than about risk. There's a classical economic definition, which is that risk is an uncertainty that you can quantify, which is a bit of an oxymoron. And I find that often the risk probabilities that we assign to things are less related to reality than we might like to think. But what I thought was my first exposure to risk was when I had just finished graduate school and I was writing about a trading of Brady Bonds, which was all the defaulted debt from the 1980s, particularly in Latin America. 
and looking at political risk, looking at sovereign credit risk. And so, you know, blending a little of the qualitative with the quantitative. And I became very interested in countries that saw a crisis coming and did something about it and companies and countries that saw something and didn't. So there was that. But I actually was thinking about risk long before I even thought about it. I want to read you a sentence. This is from my first book, which I came out in 1999 about the Dominican Republic and Haiti. And it's from an essay by Clifford Geertz, very, very famous anthropologist, an essay called Deep Play, Notes on a Balinese Cockfight. And he says, what the cockfight says is in a vocabulary of sentiment, the thrill of risk, the despair of loss, the pleasure of triumph. Yet what it says is not merely that risk is exciting, loss depressing, or triumph gratifying, but that it is of these emotions, thus exampled, that society is built and individuals put together. And that's really the approach I take now, is what the risk we take say about who we are as individuals, as societies, as organization. So a, a much more anthropological, sociological, historical, and behavioral approach than the earlier work I did, which was much more quantitative and technical. Barbara, and of course, this is one of your favorite topics. You're an expert in this space and how it specifically relates to women and investing. I wonder whether you can share your perspective and how you got into thinking so deeply about risk and women and money. Yes. So Michelle and I are both obsessed with risk, obviously. And my obsession first started during the financial crisis, 2008-9. Seems like a long time ago now. I was working as a portfolio manager, managing entrepreneurs' money, essentially people who were too busy running their own businesses to manage their own wealth. So high net worth investors. And I noticed at the very low of the market, which was March of 2009, I believe, that I started receiving a lot of panicky phone calls. I didn't know it was the bottom on that day at all, but based on my client's behavior, who were normally perfectly civilized human beings, I received seven phone calls in one day, which was unheard of, and I've been in the industry forever. And Interestingly, all seven calls, even though I worked with both genders and in couples and individual entrepreneurs, all seven were from men and really panicky, like wanting to liquidate the portfolio and not even discuss it kind of thing. They were, it's done, like I'm out, get me out, get me out, get me out. And after that, by the way, that was the hardest work I ever did in my life. And I was a psychiatrist that day rather than a chartered financial analyst. And I talked each and every one of those seven out of it, which is my number one accomplishment at that firm, for sure, it got me thinking, why is it that we always hear that women are risk averse? And it really made me mad because all the women clients that I talked to were so nice to me. They would call and ask, how are you doing, Barbara? What a horrible time to be a portfolio manager and things like that. And they'd go, are you okay? Are you taking care of yourself? How's your family? I lost half my income too, right? Like, but they were just so nice about it. And so that's when I decided there's a strong disconnect here about the messaging in the industry, across the board, including the media, about women and risk. And I don't know what to do about that. And then one day, I'm my daily runner on one of my runs, which is where I always get my big ideas. I thought the best way to counter a negative stereotype is with some positive stories. 
And I had the opportunity to travel and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to interview super successful women and share their stories from around the world. And I thought I would write one report about this and I did. And then through the encouragement of people like you, Yana, now I make it an annual report, releasing it on International Women's Day. So it turned out to be an effective way and a lot of the media started to like the positive story as well, which was fortunate. I wonder whether we can talk a little bit more, Barbara, about the negative stereotypes and money myths that women have to put up with, although thankfully times are changing thanks to your work and obviously Michelle's as well. I mean, what impact has this had, do you think, on women and how they invest or has it? And what does media have to do with it? Because I think they are responsible for quite a bit of the negative stereotyping and money myths that women encounter. Wow, that's a big question. <laughs> I could talk for hours on that, but you know what the negative stereotypes are? We could all rhyme them off for, for days. But I think the important thing to remember is we come by those stereotypes honestly in the sense that historically, the way that we defined risk tolerance in equity market investing was, do you invest in stocks or are you in cash or bonds? And historically, women didn't invest in equities for a bunch of different reasons. And if you look at how that's moved over the past 30 years, it's quite astonishing. And I don't think a lot of people understand this well because of the bad messaging that we've had to put up with us in the stereotypes. So if we look at the actual numbers, 30 years ago, there was an, let's call it an investing gap, 40% of women in the equity market, 60% of men. And I'm using Gallup poll data going way back. So that's a big gap, 20%. If we look at up to 2008, that gap had narrowed significantly. It was 65% of men investing in equities, 59% of women. So now only a 6% gap. And when I checked more recent data in 2020, same poll, there's only a 4% gap now of who's investing in the equity market. By today, which is almost, what are we, three years later, I haven't seen the more recent data and it hasn't been published. My guess is that gap would now have closed. So it's kind of a moot point if we follow what's actually going on globally with equity market investing, there is nothing to talk about. And on top of that, I would say I've also done a couple of quantitative surveys because although I love qualitative research and it's really been where all my themes have come from, I also wanted to have more credibility because men always want to hear about numbers, right? So in terms of getting my messages across as well, I did a quant survey of 2,000 women around the world in 2019 and again in 2022. And I have found through that survey that over 50% of women have over 50% of their money in the equity market. And over 25% of women have 75% invested in equities or higher. So we are no different from that in terms of how we are actually investing of those women who are investing. Certainly when it comes to investing in startups, that there is... There's still a bit of a, a difference there, and that is, relatively speaking, much higher risk. But negative stereotyping is outdated, and as you say, the data shows that women are 
very much investing and investing in these more risky assets. Michelle, I want to talk about this concept of the gray rhino. I wonder whether you can explain what it is and how might this apply to women in the topic of money and wealth building? Well, as I mentioned, my interest in risk came from my work in sovereign debt and comparing Argentina in 2000 ahead of its collapse and Greece in 2011-12, where you know, both saw a big, scary situation coming at them, the debt going up, economy going down, reserves going down. The math was really clear in both cases. And Greece sat down with its creditors and came up with an orderly restructuring agreement, and Argentina didn't. And I really wanted to know what's the difference. And at the time, I was dealing with a personal gray rhino of my own, and that I'd been running an organization and not spending enough time writing and thinking and doing my own work, which is really the thing that excites me. And this was the idea that excited me. It's why do some countries or companies or decision makers see the big thing coming at them, that's the rhino, two tons, and it's scary, that's the horn. Why do some people do something and other people don't? And it's great because if you go to the zoo and see a rhino and you ask the five-year-old next to you, what color is that rhino? They'll say, well, it's gray, duh. But the grown-ups are saying, oh, it's a black rhino. It's a white rhino. And of course, you know, neither one of those colors is accurate. And that part of the metaphor is for how much more likely than we want to think we are to miss the ball on the big obvious thing. And so it's really a challenge. Are you the kind of person who sees the gray rhino coming at you and does something? Or are you the one who lets yourself get trampled? Or the third answer, which is the one I try to push people for is, are you the one who harnesses the strength of the gray rhino and does something about it? And so as far as women, you'll see that there's research showing that although in many ways, men and women are so much more alike in risk preferences than people will admit, when it comes to social risk, to speaking up, to saying the, hey, let's talk to somebody who really knows about this. Hey, let's ask someone for directions, you know, pre-GPS <laughs> days. You know, women have been more likely to take that social risk of saying the thing that nobody else wants to say, which actually is why the gray rhino is different from the elephant in the room, which is a thing that by definition nobody talks about. And as I went around the world talking about gray rhinos, again, you know, to CEOs and policymakers about how you deal with a crisis itself, I got a lot of questions about personal risks and personal attitudes. And I flipped back to my earlier studies around anthropology, behavioral, economics, psychology, and really started asking, what does each person bring to a risk situation, a choice? And there you'll find that there are some different experiences, there are some different approaches, there are objectively different consequences that face men and women. There's research showing that a woman in a quote-unquote gender atypical role who makes a mistake will be punished way more than a man in a gender typical role that makes that mistake. And when I started looking for men in gender atypical roles, which, you know, you know, fashion, hair products, things like that, you found that those men actually were also rewarded for gender atypical things. They were getting the financing, they were getting the support that actually women weren't in the gender typical area. And then I've also found that risk stereotyping is a part of it. You know, these things that Barbara was talking about, the misconceptions about women and risk. And we're still dealing with, on the venture capital side, that women get a very, very tiny percentage of the money out there 
And some of it's because of this stereotype that women, quote unquote, don't take enough risks, which wasn't true at all. The thing that struck me as you were talking, Michelle, is a grey rhino for women, just generally, if we're thinking about money, wealth, building, that sort of thing, is probably the retirement crisis or the pension crisis. It's the fact that if women aren't saving and investing, they may not have enough or sufficient income to fund their retirement. I mean, is that a grey rhino? To what extent are women able to face up to that? Are they facing up to that? I mean, how are we dealing with that, for example? I think women are very well aware of it, and I think it's a broader societal question. When you look at why women are investing the way they are or aren't, In many cases, there might be a woman who's a single mother who, for her, the downside risk is greater on the, what if I run out of money? What if there's an emergency? I can't do something about it. It's much bigger short-term risks where preserving capital is much bigger, where it's a very different risk equation for men in many cases. Or you might see in a family where men and women because of their own personalities, not just because of gender, because I've seen it both ways. There's there's one couple I know where the woman is a very successful serial entrepreneur, like the riskiest kind of investment you can do, and her husband won't do anything riskier than, than mutual funds. But there are often cases where one spouse invests a certain way and the other spouse sees that and says, okay, I'm going to dial it up or dial it down. So you need to look at that across the whole spectrum. Or the other part is if you look at someone who is an entrepreneur, whether it's a a solopreneur or building a big business, you know, for them also, liquidity is an issue. And the circumstances are also a part. You know, this risk-averse misconception is often applied to millennials and Gen Z who come out of school with much bigger student loan debt into stock markets that have been going up at dizzying rates. And so there's a much bigger downside risk in those stock markets. And if you're paying down your loan, you're getting an automatic return of, I don't know what student loan rates are now. I think it was about 8% when I was paying mine off. We won't talk about how long ago, but you know, if you can invest and get an 8% return by shrinking your debt and by having a rainy day fund or a home down payment fund, well, that's not risk averse. That's just freaking smart. I have so many thoughts, but it's just a great discussion that we're having. And I love hearing the other perspective from Michelle. I think there's so many positives underway. I always like to stay on the positive side. I'd like to share a little bit of data just so that people that are listening can feel good about some stuff, because certainly that VC story is horrendous and it's never changing. I don't even want to go there. It's so awful. But a few things that I will say from the data that I've come up with from my Quan survey is when we asked women, 2,000 of them, fewer than one in 10, in fact, said they were risk averse. So that's a fact from 2,000 women around the world. Nearly three quarters said they were risk aware, which I think, Michelle, you, you like to use the term risk savvy, which would equate to that. So three quarters of women say that that's what they are in terms of investing. And 16% of them self-identified as actually risk-seeking. So those are the type of investors I interview. I don't know where we get all of this other information from. Some other interesting data, 64% of 18 to 29-year-old U.S. women either invest already or plan to invest within the year. This was done in 2022 during the pandemic. 
So that's so, so wonderful, that young category. And yeah. 90% of U.S. women, 18 to 59, invest using online platforms. Probably not surprising, but that's a high percentage. And globally, this is the one I really love, of women who started talking about investing during the pandemic with friends and family and work colleagues. 24% of women started talking about investing. Women who had never invested before in 2022, which was such a great year if you did get started investing. Unfortunately, the follow-up hasn't been so great. But I think we're back to square one now. And the last point I'll leave you with is about 90% of women who invest in the Nordic countries are interacting online in social communities with other women. And that is double the rate that those social communities are moving at in the U.S., which is probably a whole other conversation. But back to your original talk about the risks for women in investing, no doubt in my mind, the biggest risk for a woman is being pigeonholed into an inappropriate asset allocation for life or even for a short period of time. And why does this happen? One of two reasons. One, she has an old school investment advisor who follows all of the stereotypes and assumes she's risk averse and sticks her in a bunch of bonds with cash for years and years and years. Or she doesn't educate herself and turns a blind eye and leaves somebody else to do it for her because she's too busy, because we're all so busy as women. I also remember reading recently a little bit of research about the fact that for a lot of millennial women and Gen Z women, their first investment actually is now crypto. I'm not sure whether you've come across that. Isn't that interesting? And obviously more so than, you know, Gen X women or baby boomers, which is not surprising. I think younger women are more digitally minded. They're online. They're likely to interact on Twitter and TikTok. And we're seeing a lot of that narrative surfacing on social media around crypto, Bitcoin, Ethereum. So that's quite interesting as well. Why don't we move on and talk about systemic risk? We've touched on this already, Michelle, and we've talked about, for example, why limited or no access to information or networks or capital money affects women's experience at work and in life. How can women be proactive in counteracting systemic risk? Because unless we are conscious about the fact that this is what we are up against, it can feel quite personal, I think, the obstacles or the pushback or the resistance, the no's that women get more so than men can feel quite personal. So what can women do to counteract this? Well, I think as far as information, women are much more likely than men to go and pursue the information. Men and women with the similar amounts of information are very, very similar in the risks they take. It's the young men who haven't done the homework who tend to go and leap before they look. So I think women are good at getting information, but a very important part of that information is who. My dad always used to say, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And so that, you know, the networking, the creating the all age girls network as opposed to the old boys network. And I've seen, I've actually been commenting lately, there's so many organizations that are trying to offer this to women, whether it's in access to boards, or investment, uh, you know, portfolio investment or VC investment. There's so many of them, and I would love to see them start working together 
more. So I think it's a matter of women just being aware that this is out there and making a point of figuring out who's in your area, who's in your field, who can help with that. And as far as the access to capital, that's a tough one. There's a group called How Women Lead that's done a survey recently about why many women are hesitant to invest in some you know, riskier startup businesses. In many cases, it's the amount of investment required that, you know, in many cases, the people are looking for a really, really big investment and they might not have as much or they kind of want to put the foot in the water. So some of it's a you know, structure of investments available. And some of that involves investment regulations on where you can put your money. So I think that's part of it. And the flip side, the VC, as I was mentioning, is a challenge because women founders, the research shows that they're actually more likely to succeed than male-founded startups. And, and I think gender-diverse startups are the best bet of all. But so many women founders have told me that when they go to raise money, they bring a man with them because the VC has all these misconceptions that the woman won't, quote-unquote, take enough risk. When there's been studies on that showing that women take all of the appropriate risks that men do, and that in hindsight, you know, they learn better from the risks that they took than men. So keep looking for that information. I think having male allies, there are more and more male allies out there. And having female allies, you're seeing more and more very successful women entrepreneurs, women board members, women CEOs. There used to be a stereotype that those women might not be as willing to help. And I've heard a lot of comments lately that that's really been changing. So seek out the organizations and the mentors and the sponsors, the senior women and men who are willing to really help give you that foot up, who say, hey, I'm putting X amount of money into this startup and won't you join me with that or even bigger? So it's a matter of asking what you need and who can help you to get it and being confident and don't let anybody tell you that you are risk averse. You are risk aware. You are risk astute. You are risk savvy. You are risk badass. You're a woman. <laughs> God, it's like a rally cry. I love it. Yes. Every time I'm at a conference or giving a talk and I hear somebody describe themselves that way, I always push back exactly the same way you do, Michelle. And I think that's the number one thing we can do as women is make sure that we're saying the right things rather than allowing this to go on. Just nip it in the bud every single time you hear a woman putting herself down in this way. We just can't afford to perpetuate that at all. And I look around, speaking about like talking to people around the world and presentations, I do a lot of speaking for CFA Institute. And if I look at which women are kind of doing it right here in their communities and all of that, Asia, Southeast Asia in particular, way ahead. I mean, and the interesting thing is, of course, the culture there has been for the Asian women to be behind the scenes, not the one in the family out in the front. She's supposed to take care of everyone and not be the one doing anything. But if I look at the percentage of women CFA charter holders globally, it's 18%. In Asia, it's 50%. So what's going on with that? They might not be talking about it, but they're doing it and they're encouraging each other and they're studying up a storm to become accomplished investment professionals. So there's what we say and what we do. And if we follow behavior, 
we sometimes get some really good ideas. And of course, about 90% women in the Nordics are using online communities. I've been there, I've met them. Jana, you came to one of the events with me in Copenhagen three years ago, I think it was. Those communities, they've exploded and women do wanna be part of these online investment communities and talk about investing. So I think we're just gonna see further expansion in that. And you know, it kind of cures all our troubles if we just invest. I wonder whether, Barbara, you can share any other key risk that women should watch out for? You know, what risks should women definitely take? What should they be careful about maybe? And where should women maybe take more risk than they're already taking? Well, I'll just preface this by saying, when you have a chartered financial analyst designation, you never answer general questions about investing because your whole training is about the unique needs of the unique individual. So I can't give like blanket investment advice about where to invest right now. However, in terms of risks, another one, rather than just the one that I gave about the falling into working with a poor old-fashioned investment advisor, other than that, something I see is that my research and lots of other research has shown that women prefer to invest in causes and concerns that matter to them. And how that manifests itself in actual investments are all of these ESG, socially responsible funds, all of those kinds of things. All fabulous. We want to save the world for sure. And a woman will invest if it aligns with her personal cause or purpose. She'll do her homework. She'll definitely take a calculated risk if there's something, an investment idea that aligns with her cause. We know that. The one risk to this, I would say, is a lot of the ESG funds are highly concentrated in very few securities in the space. So don't throw all of your money into a couple of ESG funds. Find out how diversified it actually is. And you may need to have like one or two ESG funds, but complement it with maybe an overall ETF in the US market or the global market, whatever, to make sure that you are properly diversified so that you're not in fact taking on a huge risk by just investing in things that you care about. So I'm not saying you shouldn't invest in things that you care about, but be careful about making assumptions of what's in that ESG fund. Because as we all know, the investment industry is largely unregulated and marketers take over and marketers give all of the funds the names that they have. And as investors, it's buyer beware of what the hell is actually in that fund. And I see it over and over again. When I-, I would second that so strongly. Know what's in the portfolio. There are a lot of quote unquote ESG funds that will pick a company just because it's, it's not polluting or whatever, but it might not necessarily be doing what you want. It might not be, for example, investing in new initiatives, in newer technologies, in other kinds of impact that you want to see. And they are often a very highly concentrated. And I would say that to any investor, whatever sector, look at what's in the portfolio first. And ESG standards are all over the place. Very, very little consistency. So understand what the screen or the filter is that the company is using. And, and you may actually do better investing in individual stocks as you'll have a much better sense of what you're doing. But again, 
being diversified because that's really important. And also this question actually about what risk should you take more of or less of, people tend to think about risk as a quantifiable, as a constant thing. And it's very, very different for different people. So I would say start out looking at the risks that you take in different areas of your life. Look at your values. What are the things that you are willing to let fall aside? What are the things that are the most important to you? And then look at the energy, the time, the money that you're putting into these different areas. I get asked a lot, is there a right risk personality? You know, it's part of the, this risk fingerprint concept that I have. It's a combination of your personality with your lived experience, with the habits, the conscious decisions, the processes, the environment that you create. And I said, there's, there's no ideal innate personality. And even if there was, you can't do anything about it because you can't change it. It's, you know, it's genetic. But look at the combination of your personality with your experiences. People react differently. For example, if someone cuts their finger with a knife, one person might say, oh, I don't want anything more dangerous than a spork ever. No more knives for me. And someone else will say, oh, I cut my finger blue, put a bandaid on it. I'm going to be a sushi chef. And then you take that combination and then you look at the people you surround yourself with, the information that you seek out. You know, if you're not a big information seeker, well, get to it. You know, crack those books, go, go on the Internet, find people who can give you the information that you have. Make sure that you've got a circle of people who can advise you on different risks, whether it's a financial or social or career. Make sure you have that chatty best friend from the rom-com who always says the sassy thing that nobody else will say, but that needs to be said. And even be aware of your body and what state you're in when you're making a decision. I mean, traders do this all the time. They look at biometrics, other influences, you know, the temperature in the room what you had for lunch, how spicy it was, what music you're listening to, the, the tempo, all sorts of influences on the risk that you take or don't take. And so when you're looking at yourself, see what sort of state that you're in, and then look at these different risk possibilities. If you're going to go do a startup, well, then be a little more conservative in your financial risks. If, you, if you're in a relationship that's really, really important to you, well, Maybe being an entrepreneur is not the best thing because that's going to suck up your entire life. I mean, look at risk across this portfolio of your life, the right risks for you in your situation at your time of life, considering the things that are going on in the world. And these risks, when you look at them that way, it becomes like a room full of fun house mirrors. You change your perspective a little bit. You change how much knowledge you have. You change how aware you are of a risk and what you could do to deal with it. And the nature of the risk itself changes. So there's no such thing as a particular risk because it's really specific to each person. I think a lot about the glass cliff phenomenon, not so much for female investors, but female CEOs who are investing in a different way. In many cases, you'll see women who are brought in to lead a company when it's in a disastrous situation, yeah. which is a huge risk, but it's also the kind of thing that women are seen as one more capable of doing and that men might not be as comfortable doing, but it's also the result of there being fewer opportunities for women to be brought in on their merit as opposed to a situation that everyone else is afraid of. So, you know, you look at GM, you look at Yahoo, you look at any number of companies 
where a woman was brought in to clean things up. And there's also some research showing that in situations of stress, that women tend to make more steady, risk-aware decisions, and men become more risk-seeking in those situations. So women in a time of crisis actually are a better risk bet. But an even better risk bet than that would be to get the women in the deciding positions before you end up in a crisis. I love that brilliant discussion. At this point, I've interviewed over, I think, 1,200 really successful women leaders around the world. And I never like to pick favorites, but there's one story I think is relevant to this question, which is Anne Sheehan. I don't know if you've ever met her. She's general manager for Microsoft in Ireland. And she told me her story, which is in one of my research papers, about how a few years ago she was having a panel discussion with male CEOs and that question of diversity inclusion came up and should we have more women on the leadership team, blah, blah, blah. And one male CEO was saying about, well, we need to see the payoff and here are the numbers behind it. And yes, we should do it because there is this payoff. And she said to him, well, maybe we should do it because it's the right thing to do. And she said, she pushed it even further and said, so are you telling me that if there was no financial payoff that you would continue to oppress women? And this was in a very public forum with hundreds of people in the audience. And he was just like, they had, as she called it, quite an argy-bargy, which maybe that's an Irish term. She said, and the media just love this. And I'm raising this because I greatly admire her for speaking up, right? So what can we do as women? I mean, there's a woman who's taking a risk, but she's also taking a risk on behalf of all of us as well. So like each of us, I think on this panel today are doing, I mean, Yana, you've got the first podcast, you're putting it out there, Michelle, you're putting it out there. The more we can do as risk takers for other women, then we're really talking about something important. So I, I love seeing people who stuff like that. I want to lead on to my last question. This has been a phenomenal conversation. And I know for a fact that we could talk for hours and hours about this. But I did want to finish talking about self-care. This is your suggestion, Barbara, an important topic, this idea of self-care and how it relates to money and investing and specifically for women. So I wonder whether you can share your thoughts. I just spent last year interviewing men and women around the world on the topic of how do you invest in yourself? And that report will be released on March 8th. I'll be speaking in Stockholm. So I'm pretty excited about that. But along the way, I learned a lot and got inspired by a lot of ways you can take care of yourself and invest in yourself. And one woman in particular who really resonated with me is a New York-based investment advisor who's won a million awards. And she's like one of the top advisors in the U.S. And she told me in answer to my question of how she invests in herself, she said, I do everything. She said, I run every morning for my health. I only eat the best quality foods. I spend money on food. I only travel business class so that I can get proper sleep and I can work if I need to in business class. And I will do whatever it takes, as many facials and massages as I feel I need. Why? Why isn't this an extravagance? Because she wants to work. She loves her job. She makes a fortune in her job. 
She wants to work for as many years as possible. She loves her clients. She loves her job. So she'll spend whatever amount of money investing in herself to make sure she can keep working. So I think it's a great example of if you invest in yourself and your self-care, you can actually have more working years, which leads to more money and hopefully more investing. And so it's great. I mean, not everybody is in a very wealthy position like that. However, I think the angle on it really makes a lot of sense to me. Absolutely. It's this question of, of human capital. It's not just investment capital. And, and Barbara makes the very good point that people in a position of privilege can do things. They have options that other women and men might not have. But I think it's, it's really worth management of companies thinking about that, that when your staff is able to do better by themselves and their children and their families, they're going to be more productive. They're going to be more healthy. There's the return on human capital. It's really important. And I mean, personally, some of the, the times in my life where I've had to make the biggest changes have been when I was burning the candle at both ends. I mean, hi, I'm Michelle. I'm a recovering workaholic. <laughs> and, you know, really being mindful of it, paying attention to your body. I mean, I spent a lot of time walking my dog along the lake, partly because she's fun and she goes up and she's appointed herself the neighborhood therapy dog, whether you need therapy or not. But, you know, the fresh air and the beautiful weather and the exercise walking is really important to keeping me sane and healthy. And it's often the time when I get the most creative ideas or the breakthroughs on problems. And to be creative, you really, really need to have some spare reserves because otherwise that doesn't come through. And creativity is just about the best kind of human capital you can have. Can I give a shout out to my Bernese Mountain Dog, who I really miss, who's also a wonderful <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Barbara and Michelle, this brings our conversation to a close. I want to say thank you again. I've said this before. I will say it again. You're both so inspiring. Your work is making a huge impact and a huge contribution. It's so needed, and I've no doubt that a lot of our listeners will thoroughly enjoy this conversation. So I want to thank you again for your time, and no doubt we will catch up soon. Thank you for the great conversation and, and for bringing us all together. Thank you, Yana, also for the work you do. It's really important. Thank you for joining me today. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me online at Join the Purse. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter, jointhepurse.substack.com. Until next time, goodbye.